service. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Judy Garland are insane. She began a daily regimen of diet pills and downers when she was only 14 years old. She subsisted on a diet of chicken soup, black coffee, and cigarettes to remain 98 pounds at the request of MGM Studios. Her decades-long dependence on pills caused her liver to swell to four times its normal size, nearly killing her in her late 30s. But despite all the abuse her body received from a very early age, Judy Garland made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Homestead Trio performing Just a Baby's Prayer at Twilight in 1918. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. And why would I play you that specific slice of ready-for-my-close-up cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 29, 1950. And that was the day MGM dissolved their contract with Judy Garland, leaving her completely alone for the first time in her life. On this episode, uppers, downers, near-fatal diets, MGM, and their little movie star, too. Judy Garland. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 4, Hollywoodland. Taxi blitzed through another red light. Judy Garland watched the traffic signal shrink in the rearview mirror as the car raced forward. That was the second one the driver ignored, if her count was correct. The cab glided like a checkered yellow race car, swerving, speeding, switching lanes on a dime with fractions of a second to spare. Red lights were merely suggestions. And this cabbie wasn't taking any unsolicited advice today. You'd be hard-pressed to find an ambulance driver who could do any better. Judy's husband flagged the right cab driver that day, and that much was certain. Didn't matter who he pissed off or whose new paint job he dinged. This ride was a matter of life or death. Frankly, 
At this point, it was closer to death. Judy rested her hands over her stomach like an expectant mother in the back seat. The plush fabric of her gown strained to contain her swollen flesh. She imagined the buttons down her back bursting off one at a time, and the sleeves of her gown cutting into her thick biceps, and the stage clothes slicing her porcelain skin. Her third and current husband, Sid Love, rested a hand on her knee, also swollen. Everything about Judy Garland was swollen. Body parts you didn't even think could swell. Sidney had never seen anything like it before. He gave her inflated knee a sympathetic squeeze and forced a smile. But when his gaze drifted to the martini in Judy's hand, his smile crumpled into a grimace. November, 1959. In the beginning, Sydney didn't think anything of Judy's weight gain, not when her current tour began, right here in New York, roughly six months prior. In May, she looked exuberant. Well, as exuberant as a woman addicted to prescription pills could be. While Judy ate pills like candy, her fans ate up her live performances, swooning over her renditions of famous show tunes. Sydney booked the shows, Judy sang the classics. It was an arrangement that kept Judy off movie sets and kept her hardcore admirers, AKA the cult of Garland, happy. By 1959, Judy had repeated this rigorous regimen of performances hundreds of times. She even set a new record for most consecutive shows at the Palace Theater in Los Angeles. Judy once packed the palace every day, twice a day, for 19 weeks straight, no days off. Judy single-handedly brought 800,000 people to the palace between 1951 and 1952, making her solely responsible for the renewal of America's premier vaudeville theater. But that was at the beginning of the 50s. This was the tail end of the decade. Judy was 37 now. She wore almost 25 years of showbiz and the lines on her face. Most people with deep-seated addictions didn't make it to 27, let alone 37. She and Sydney had to cough up their own cash to finance and promote her performances. As Judy's figure bloated further over her six-month opera tour, it became clear why no insurance company wanted to touch her. Sydney knew his wife. He knew her weight fluctuated, whose didn't. But something was different this time. This didn't just seem like extra pounds. Something was very wrong. So Sidney devised a plan. He rang up a doctor pal of his and invited him to stop backstage before a show. Sidney instructed the doctor to visit him and Judy away from the crowds. And while he was back there, he needed to get a good glimpse of Judy. He was to report back to Sidney under the radar. The doctor's discreet diagnosis was worse than Sidney imagined. Judy hadn't gained weight not in the normal sense. Instead, her body was flush with toxic fluids, an after effect of her daily pill popping that went back to her formative years as a teenage actress, back when MGM pumped her full of chemicals like a lab rat. The buildup meant that something in Judy's body wasn't functioning properly, her spleen or her pancreas, even her liver, maybe all the above. Her condition was so severe that the doctor informed Sydney that Judy could slip into a coma at any moment, and there was no guarantee that she'd come out of it either. The odds were grim, but not as grim as what Judy demanded next. Apparently, the urgency of her current medical situation paled in comparison to Judy's urgent thirst for a stiff drink. When Sydney tried to coerce her into a cab, Judy's face snapped, and there it was, her stubbornness smuggled inside that transatlantic accent of hers. She wasn't going anywhere, she informed her husband. 
not until she had a martini in her hand. Sydney wanted to snap right back at her. She was a stuck-up fool, incapable of seeing the irony of her request. But arguing meant losing precious time. Sydney conceded, Judy got her triple vodka. She nursed it in the backseat of the taxi that Sydney had flagged down. Judy clutched her drink in one gloved hand and tapped the cabbie on the shoulder with the other. She instructed him to whisk her away to the doctor's hospital on East End Avenue and to fucking step on it. Judy didn't slip into a coma in the back seat. Miraculously, her liver held out for the ride as she doused it with more alcohol, even more poison on top of the poison she was already packing. After she weakly sauntered into the hospital, doctors drained 20 quarts of toxic fluids from her body. That's five gallons. Five gallons of poison swishing around in her body, inflating her limbs, her stomach, her face, every day for God knows how many months. As it turns out, Judy's liver had grown to four times its normal size, undoubtedly the result of two plus decades of pill and alcohol abuse. Judy wilted in a hospital bed for nearly two months. The whispers, on the other hand, flourished. Judy Garland might not make it. Judy Garland had already performed her final show. But Judy's signature stubbornness resurfaced. After seven weeks, she pulled through, perhaps if only to spite the naysayers. When she regained her strength, the doctors shared one final earth-shattering discovery. She would likely never perform again. After such a close brush with death, Judy was bound to live the rest of her life as a quote-unquote semi-invalid. The recommendation was that the only time she would appear on screens was for a rerun of The Wizard of Oz. Hey, at least it was a regular gig. In the pre-cable era, The Wizard of Oz was broadcast on CBS at least once a year from 1959 to 1991. But the doctors underestimated her. Few performers had ever spent more hours on a set or stage than the great Judy Garland. She was born to perform. This debacle was just a short-lived setback. If anything was going to bring down the curtain on Judy Garland, it would be the one constant in her life since age 14. Not movie sets, not stages. It would be the tablets of Secanol, Benzatrine, and Dexatrine. Oh my. Judy Garland felt it in her chest first. The delicate pitter-patter of her heartbeat graduated to thumps, loud, pounding wallops that beat against her ribcage. Her heart pumped blood in deep throbs. Energy surged through her veins. She gasped and sat up in her chair. Must be showtime. Judy didn't know what time it was. She didn't know how long she had been knocked out either. She never knew much of anything when she jolted awake from the smog that washed over her brain, courtesy of a mighty dose of Nembatol. Judy felt the speed course through her nerves, striking her limbs like bolts of lightning. She twirled one of her braids as she meandered back onto set. Munchkinland was gone. So were the literal thousands of quote-unquote munchkins frolicking around in their glittery garb. MGM staff had apparently reset the scenery for the Wizard of Oz shoot while Judy dozed peacefully on the sidelines. So dead to the world, you would have thought someone dropped a house on her. It was only natural then that another handful of diapills were required to kickstart Judy's spunk and prep her for the next scene. 
MGM dished out those diet pills like routine vitamins. Back when Judy Garland first inked the contract with the studio in 1935, she was a perfectly healthy 13-year-old with a taste for pistachio ice cream. But perfectly healthy just wouldn't do. Not by the unattainable standards of the 1930s. And ice cream wouldn't do either. The studio had strict orders from Louis B. Mayer himself. Groom that girl and slimmer. The studio began a regiment of daily diet pills for Judy, which she washed down with a bowl of chicken soup. Every single day. Hot, sticky broth in the dry California heat for lunch, for dinner. On Christmas, it was practically torture, but it was torture that provided results. And Louis Mayer was all about results. When Judy thinned out, the constant stream of soup and pills didn't slow down. A diminutive ladylike figure was a top priority if you wanted to be in pictures. MGM liked Judy best when she was 98 pounds. No more, no less. So the regimen continued. The diet pills kept her upbeat and underweight, but they kept her wide awake at night too. MGM was unfazed. They had an easy solution for that, also in a pill form. She was already accustomed to taking a bunch of those every day, what were a few more? The studio doctor prescribed Judy a heavy dosage of second all to help her quickly slip into her beauty sleep every night, essentially overpowering the pep of the diet pills. The second alls worked so well that Judy now needed the diet pills if she wanted some spring in her step on set, lest she succumb to the coma-like slumber that the second alls provided her. It became, of course, a vicious cycle practically overnight. Judy needed downers to overpower the uppers. She reached for uppers to snap her out of the drowsiness provided by the downers. Up, down, up, down, a walking, talking yo-yo. MGM saw the cycle as so effective that they started using Nembatol to coerce Judy's body into rest when a set needed to be changed in the middle of the 16-hour days. If there were two or three hours to spare and Judy was wide-eyed and jeeped up, that meant it was time to metaphorically traipse through some poppy fields on the way to Oz and pass out for a spell. When the set was prepped, the diet pills reanimated her and she was off to see the wizard once again. Judy lived the life of a 1970s-era rock star, swinging between states of consciousness, each triggered by a prescription pill. She was hopelessly hooked. But unlike the troubled rockers who pissed away their 20s and 30s with pills, Judy Garland was 16 years old. Not to worry, though. She'd be a full-fledged, fully-grown superstar in no time. Judy was on the up and up. And so was her pill intake. Judy Garland's migraine pulsed so intensely that it almost aligned with her heartbeat. The stream of California sun peeking into her trailer pierced her vision like shrapnel. It cut to the core of her retinas, pinched her brain. And Judy snapped the blinds shut and plopped onto her sofa, shielding her eyes from any extra light with her palm. She smeared a swath of face paint in the process. Oh shit, oh well. Wardrobe could do it again after her lunch break. It was a ridiculous sight. A lily-white woman dressed head to toe in a phony Native American costume. The moccasins, the single red feather tucked between her brunette braids, white and yellow lines drawn down her nose, her cheeks. She was a gaudy caricature. Hollywood stereotypical idea of what an entire race of people looked like. And this was not how Annie Oakley, sharpshooter of the Wild West, dressed. But to the folks at MGM producing the film version of Annie Get Your Gun, it was imperative to include a massive and wildly racist musical number called I Am an Indian Too. Horrific by 2022 standards, but reprehensibly normal in 1949. As one of the heavy hitters at the box office in MGM's Golden Girl Next Door, 
Judy Garland was the obvious choice for the role of the titular markswoman. At least she was until it came time to film the movie, when it became obvious that Judy was very much the wrong choice. By the end of the 1940s, Judy Garland had filmed 27 movies in 13 years with MGM. She was hooked on pills while she filmed every single one of them. Judy had already been in and out of rehabilitation centers, diagnosed with malnutrition and exhaustion. Her strict chicken soup diet expanded to include black coffee, benzedrine, and four packs of cigarettes a day, required to curb the extreme hunger after working 16 to 18 hour days. While shooting The Pirate just a year or so prior, Judy became so thin that MGM even asked her to gain weight. The diet pills were useless, even harmful now, but the withdrawals gnawed at Judy's acting abilities. She kept with her uppers and downers routine just to spare herself the pain. A former U.S. commissioner of narcotics even suggested to MGM that Judy get a year of rest because of her severe drug problem. MGM scoffed at the notion. They had $14 million tied up in this woman. Judy wasn't going anywhere. You could say that the shit started to hit the fan when the camera started rolling for Annie Get Your Gun. But truth was, the shit had been splattering all over MGM sets for years. This was just a breaking point, one of many to come over the course of Judy's career started with that migraine. The omnipresent stab wound between her eyes and her forehead and striking her brain and her skull simultaneously. The pain made it difficult for Judy to retain her lines or the immense amount of coordination required to remain in step with the choreography for a complicated musical number. And then there was the southern drawl or Judy's complete lack thereof. She struggled to pick up a convincing twang that would hide her crisp way of speaking. But the most glaring evidence that Judy Garland had been woefully miscast is that Judy Garland was afraid of guns. The movie's hero, an outlaw with a quick draw, was terrified to pull the trigger. MGM found a replacement before they wasted much more time trying to sell Judy as a rifle to a rough and tumble rascal of the Wild West. A knock on Judy's trailer roused her from her position on the sofa. She dragged herself over to the door, telegram. Her eyes struggled to focus on the message. She squinted at the brief note. Don't bother to report back to work after lunch because you were dismissed from the picture, the telegram stated. Those rats. She crumpled the letter in her fist with disgust, tossed it on the floor and stomped on it with her tacky moccasins. The audacity dropped from a picture like a hapless has-been or an underwhelming amateur. She was Judy Garland. She practically invented the great MGM musicals. What was Louis B. Mayer thinking? Judy collapsed back onto the sofa with a huff. This wouldn't sit well with their fans, that much was for sure. So while the public and the press salivated over their so-called scandals of Judy's medical matters, she jetted to the East Coast to try to pry herself from her pill-popping yet again. And she checked into the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston in May of 1949. In place of the pills, the facility provided Judy with three hearty meals a day. Chicken soup was finally off the menu. Judy gained back her spirit and some healthy weight over the course of 13 weeks, right up until Louis B. Mayer closed his checkbook. He insisted that Judy return to Hollywood to film Summer Stock, MGM's next musical starring Judy and Gene Kelly. But according to the hospital staff, Judy still needed another three months of treatment to fully recover. Mayer dangled Judy's contract over a shredder as bait. When Judy left the facility that summer, she left behind her hard-earned personal growth, too. As predicted, Summerstock undid everything. 
The progress with the kicking of the pills, her healthy new figure both gone instantly. Upon her arrival in California, MGM reeled at Judy's weight gain. The studio demanded that she drop 15 pounds before the start of summer stock. Judy only managed to drop 11 pounds in seven days. A frightening medical feat, but a major disappointment for MGM nonetheless. Boston had recharged Judy's battery, but barely. She suffered through summer stock. She got happy when she needed a smile on set as the flick's famous musical number demanded, but Summerstock depleted Judy Garland. She was running on empty once again. And when she missed a handful of rehearsals for MGM's next picture, Royal Wedding, the studio gave Judy the boot before she had the chance to redeem herself. Another failed starring role, another telegram, and a final parting message from MGM straight from Western Union. You're fired, this time for good. First, MGM suspended Judy's contract in June of 1950. They officially ripped it up in September. MGM offered her no severance pay. She had no retirement funds, no residuals, nowhere to turn for new film work. No directors to guide her through her next steps. Her career was in her own shaky hands now. For the first time since she was 13, Judy Garland was on her own. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Judy Garland hunched over and placed both hands on her knees. She panted. The blue and white polka-dotted kerchief knotted around her neck seemed to squeeze the air from her throat. Sweat soaked into her itchy nylons. Pins in her hair pulled at her scalp. Picture-perfect updos weren't made to wear all day. Not unless you were on set, of course. They then stayed in until the scene was picture-perfect, literally. In this musical sequence for the song, The Man That Got Away, was far from it. From her crouched position, Judy slowly raised her eyes to director George Cukor, as if to say, are we done yet? He shook his head. No. Judy almost collapsed. Almost. But instead, she dabbed the beads of perspiration from her forehead and went back to her seat at the piano bench. What was this, take 12, take 23? Judy couldn't keep track if she tried especially not over the course of three days, singing the same song for the same scene. She caught her breath at the piano and reset her mind, and then her voice and then her face, and she did what the pros did. Judy Garland was still a pro, even if she wasn't making movies with MGM anymore. For one, Judy had already proven herself to the public hundreds of times over with her live performances of Garland catalog classics. Hundreds of thousands of tickets sold, almost a million. But could Judy still move movie tickets? That was the real question. You're only as good as your last picture. And Judy's last picture was, well, she got kicked out of her last picture. Royal Wedding was a few years ago now. That's why her return to the screen had to be larger than life. Personal, musical, magical. Intricately dotted with details about rising to celebrity status, influenced by Judy's very own story. It had to be A Star Is Born. 
1937 film starring Janet Gaynor had been on Judy's mind for more than a decade. Judy had played the leading role of Vicki Lester in a 1942 Lux Radio production of the story, but that was only audio. Judy yearned to bring her to life in a proper remake of A Star is Born, to depict two lives entangled in the nefarious nature of fame as one lover rises to the height of celebrity while the other sinks from standing ovations into obscurity. Since MGM was no longer forcing her to tap dance through mind-numbing musical numbers, the project was a real possibility now. She switched studios and secured the rights to make a new version of A Star is Born with Warner Brothers. Judy could continue her career on her own. She could make a movie on her own, so to speak. Judy Garland could do the same scene, and I mean the same scene, same voice inflection, same facial expression, same showgirl poise, 27 times over the course of the three days. Judy Garland could do anything if she had the proper pills. That was the caveat. It had always been the caveat. Nothing could keep Judy down except a lack of pills. When filming for A Star Is Born began, Judy's husband, Sidney, created a compromise of sorts. He hired a studio doctor from MGM who was already familiar with Judy's medical history to oversee her pill intake over the course of the film shoot. At the time, it seemed like the most humane option. The work would still get done, Judy could focus. There would be no withdrawals to weaken her performance, and the doctor could ensure that her intake didn't escalate. Not that it could escalate, really. Pop-uppers and downers every day of your life from age 14 and onwards and your tolerance will rocket over the rainbow. For months, Judy chased a new personal career high as she filtered her own life story through the explosive passion of the character of Vicki Lester. The pills powered her through an unhinged portrayal of a new starlet witnessing an older star crumble into ashes at the hand of alcoholism. Judy took her time developing her rendition of the story, giving it the care and attention to detail she knew it deserved. And the movie's final cut clocked in at just over three hours. But the film that the cult of Garland saw on opening night in September of 1954 was not the same film that the rest of the nation would see later that fall. With a runtime of 182 minutes, movie theaters could only show the film three times per day. So they demanded a shorter cut. A cut they could show five times every day to sell more tickets and bring in more moviegoers with more cash. Warner Brothers wanted to see more ticket sales too, since the film had cost them $6 million, instead of the $2.5 million they originally budgeted for. The studio cut the film to 100 minutes, removing almost half of the movie. The story was ruined. Judy's authentic, well-developed drama was reduced to a shallow set of musical numbers. A Star Is Born was considered a financial failure. It was a failure at controlling Judy's pill problem too. Sidney's heart was in the right place when he hired that studio doctor, but his common sense was not. Once the couple returned to their home in Bel Air, just a stone's throw from fellow Hollywood hotshots being Crosby and Lana Turner, he suspected things were worse than he could have ever imagined. Sidney realized it the moment he accepted a package from Saks Fifth Avenue, on Judy's behalf, of course. Under normal circumstances, a flush film star receiving an order from a high-end clothing store might not raise any red flags. But Sydney knew that Judy wasn't on set anymore, where she could cop pills from almost anyone on payroll, even from the masseuse if she needed to. But now, Judy was home, and that meant she had to get crafty. Sydney unwrapped the package. He removed a flowing robe from the box, rubbed the plush fabric between his fingers, 
That's when he felt it. A tunnel capsule sewn into the lining. He ran his hands down the length of the robe. He felt another, and another, and then another. He unfolded the robe to find dozens of pills, each carefully sewn into the fabric, hidden from unsuspecting mailmen and snooping husbands. Sydney's cheeks went pale with shock, and then pink with shame. Then they darkened to red. He chucked the robe onto the floor and started tossing open drawers, lifting up rugs, digging through old trunks, examining the curtains. How many pills could one woman possibly hide? He couldn't fathom the answer, not even after he saw it with his own eyes. There were secondalls buried in Judy's bath powder, stray pills sleeping at the bottom of her cigarette packages. Her stashes spread across every square inch of the house, each in different unique locations lest someone find one collection. It was like a treasure hunt that never ended. After all, a woman who would consume 40 dexedrine in a single day had to keep hundreds of tablets on her if she wanted to keep up with her habit for more than a few days at a time. God damn it. He was an enabler. A fucking enabler. Sydney saw that now. He let Judy keep her precious pills on the set of A Star Is Born, and this is what he got in return. Stashes of secondalls and a secretive wife. Some good the humane approach had done. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Sydney loved Judy, fiercely, so fiercely that he knew he had to be a prick about it. So the gloves came off when Judy came to later that day. Sydney confronted her about the veritable pharmacy hidden in their family's home. He threatened to leave, but his heart wasn't in it. He just wanted to scare Judy into action. His threat fell flat. It only confirmed Judy's feelings that Sydney was nothing but a square. Judy would have her pills tonight and tomorrow night and for as long as she liked. I don't give a fuck. Get lost. I dare you to leave, Judy cried out. So Sydney did just that. He stormed out of the house and checked into a nearby motel. Another farce. It did little more than spur on rumors in the papers that the couple was headed for divorce. The entire argument was a losing battle, just like Judy's addiction. The pills would always be with Judy, even when MGM wasn't. Even when Sydney wasn't. Call Judy Garland a has-been in the Hollywood scene and she'll shoot a three-hour masterpiece that the public will never see. Call her a semi-invalid and she'll perform a show heralded as the greatest night in show business history. Judy held Carnegie Hall in the palm of her hands on April 23, 1961, well over a year since her incident with the enlarged liver and toxic fluids polluting her body. Never mind that speed bump right now. That was all at the back of Judy's mind. Headlining Carnegie Hall was about glistening like a newly reborn phoenix under those storied stage lights. About regaling an A-list audience featuring the likes of Richard Burton and Marilyn Monroe. About recording one of the greatest live albums of all time. A Billboard bestseller and multi-Grammy award winner. The adoration for Judy in the music hall reflected off of her cheeks. She was a revelation. She glowed. But that was not. Tonight, tonight, in 1969, Judy Garland disgraced the stage in London. Cigarette ashes rained down on her from ashtrays the crowd had launched on stage in disgust. 
the audience pitched trash, hissed from their seats. Debris was scattered all across the stage. Judy crouched down to a shrunken position and tried to collect it all. One fan catapulted some hard lump sugar across the piano on stage, which shattered a glass as it whirled by. Judy had showed up one hour and 45 minutes late that evening, after relentlessly trying to back out of the show. Her body was too weak, she protested. Her voice was too weak. Her spirit was slipping too. Judy was quite the actress, but she wasn't exaggerating. By 1969, her nervous system was shattered. Her sense of balance was non-existent. Her body odor literally changed, a symptom of malnutrition. She craved 20 to 30 Ritalin tablets every day, followed by eight seconds to sleep. The same pills that propped her up for decades were finally pulling her under. When Judy Garland greeted her audience nearly two hours behind schedule, her guests were elated to see her, elated because they could finally give her a piece of their mind. The boldest of the critics vaulted himself on stage amidst the chaos and swiped the mic stand from Judy's trembling hands. If you can't turn up on time, why turn up at all, he bellowed. Years ago, Judy could have at least barked a jab back at him. But tonight, only a whimper escaped her lips. At least I'm a lady, she protested quietly before marching off stage. Both parties went home disappointed. For Judy Garland, the 60s swung like a fast-moving pendulum. She could be a star reborn at one moment, smiling under the lights of Carnegie Hall, recording one of the most lauded live albums of all time. She could be in a coma the next moment, clinging to life in her weak 78-pound body like she did during an unfortunate stop in Hong Kong in 1964. She was unpredictable, and so was the public's opinion of her. They loved her, they hated her, they loved to hate her. The pattern began the moment that Judy was fired from her first picture nearly two decades earlier. Up, down, up, down. Judy repeated the same old song and dance to win them back every time. But there wasn't much song left in Judy Garland by 1969. And dance, well, forget about it. Her role as the ascending singer faded in the rear view. It was time to embrace the role of the disintegrating star, free-falling from celebrity status, bracing for the impact of her inevitable crash and burn. The very same circle of life Judy depicted in A Star Is Born condensed into one character, except Judy Garland didn't drown herself in the ocean like her character's fictional husband did. Instead, she drowned herself in barbiturates on June 22, 1969. Judy's fifth and final husband, Mickey Deans, found her locked in the bathroom of the rented London home that morning, sitting upright in a chair. Her head collapsed onto her chest, body stiff from rigor mortis. Doctors declared that the overdose was accidental after finding the equivalent dose of 10 seconds in Judy's bloodstream. In Judy's final act, the masses swung in her favor one last time. More than 20,000 people gathered at Judy's memorial to pay their respects to honor the early end of a life once destined for three or four more decades of entertainment. Judy Garland's life mimicked a star is born right down to the pacing. Too much living crammed into a too short runtime. If only it could have played out naturally. It could have been brilliant. It could have been in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan in this is Badlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.